whether you are starting a business or running a business, maybe you're producing a podcast like The Kara Golden Show. Let's face it, it's always way harder than one might expect. Lots of little details, meticulous planning, producing product, guest coordination, editing, promoting each episode. It's all a ton of work. Managing merchandise, managing cases and book sales too, layer after layer of complexity. And if you're like me, looking for ways to operate more efficiently and effectively is the name of the game. That's why I'm going to let you in on a little secret. ShipStation, the tool that is here to help you and you need to know all about it. With ShipStation, you can integrate with all the places you sell online, optimize your shipping, save costs and time. Personally, ShipStation has been a lifesaver for me. Its automation features allow me to manage orders from anywhere and print shipping labels with just a click. Seriously, it's that easy. And the cost savings? Unbelievable. With discounts up to 89% off carrier rates, you can't go wrong. Significant savings. And who doesn't want that? An easy-to-use dashboard, robust reporting. Oh, and did I mention that over 130,000 companies have leveraged ShipStation to grow their businesses? Not much churn either. 98% of them stay with ShipStation because it truly works. ShipStation is it. So if you're ready to streamline your shipping process and focus more on what you love, head over to ShipStation.com the innovative tool that helps turn your shipping challenges into opportunities for growth. Go to ShipStation.com and use code CARA to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com, code CARA. Use code CARA for a free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com, promo code CARA. We have to keep in mind, two things are important, to be lucky and not Mistake being lucky for being smart. I am unwilling to give up. That I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out. Knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control. 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 Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders. We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show, and I'm so thrilled to have my friend, Avram Miller, who I haven't seen in a long, long time, but have followed him closely on uh social and, and of course, uh, have admired his journey for very, very long. And I'm so thrilled to have him here. He is not only the uh, co-founder, founder of Intel Capital, uh, but also the author of The Flight of a Wild Duck, An Impossible Journey Through Life and Technology, which is coming out in September. He's going to talk a little bit more about that. I just got a preview of the book and it is so, so good. And I not only was inspired, uh, which which actually uh, takes a lot for me to be inspired. I was just, I was really, really excited about this and stuff that I didn't even know about Avram uh, that was uh, that was definitely really fun to see in this. And he's also been at really the center of technology uh, going back to the early '80s. And uh, when you think about, so many people have read my book and have even said, you know, the 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 mid nineties was just a time when so much stuff was going on and that, you know, it was, it must've been so exciting for me to live in, in that time. I, uh, definitely look at that period as a, as a, you know, definitely great history to look back on, but also the, the eighties and the early nineties, what was going on? I mean, not only Intel and everything they were doing, but, Microsoft and and uh, Apple and uh, Avram has seen it, uh, seen it all, and has uh, known many of these founders as well. So 
he's uh, he's one of the most successful venture capital, uh, been a part of one of the most successful venture capital groups in Silicon Valley, and uh, also had invested in GeoCities, Broadcast.com, Ver- VeriSign, CNET, CMGI. I mean, you name it. This is Aram's the guy. And actually, he's been he was in Israel, I know, for the last few years, and he's finally back on uh, on the best coast in, in uh, California. So we're thrilled to have you back here and uh, very, very excited to be here. So thank you for coming on. Thank you. <laughs> I, I enjoy your podcast and I'm, I'm delighted to be able to participate. Super excited. So one of the things, you know, I, as I mentioned, I just got through the great book, which is so cool. And and uh, if you could see this on here for our YouTube fans, uh, it's such a great cover. I, I love it. Uh, so Avram, tell everybody a little bit about Avram, Avram the Kid, before we get into sort of the, the uh, juicy stuff going forward. And Avram the Kid, who was Avram? Okay. Well, first of all, I was born before the first computer was born. So uh, you know, when talk about going back to the 80s, I actually put my hand on, like, I started working on computers in the 60s. I'll talk about that a little bit more later. But I grew up in San Francisco. My family had been in San Francisco since before the 1900s. Uh, grew up in a Jewish family. San Francisco at one time was the second largest Jewish city, had the second largest Jewish population in the United States. Most people don't know that. But anyway, I grew up in that culture. I was a sickly child. I was very sick. I had chronic asthma. I was constantly uh, taken to the hospital. I had a kind of dysfunctional family. My father, who had asthma, would get angry at me when I got sick, I think because he felt a little bit guilty about having given it to me. My mother would be terrified. Uh, But I learned a lot of things at the hospital. I learned how to get nurses to laugh because I knew that if they laughed, they would take better care of me. Wow. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I did that for a while. And then I, something happened that was probably, I'm sure changed my life totally. Uh, the doctors recommended that I go to a convalescent home, a home for kids that had chronic illness. And it was called the Stanford convalescent home. And today it's next to the Stanford shopping Center and it's called the Ronald McDonald House. Uh, it's not the same building. It kind of looks. They may have adopted some of it. In my book, I have a picture of it. And there I was for almost a year. My parents seldom visited me, and I, you know, it may, it may sound like, oh, this must have been horrible, but I never experienced anything as being horrible except I would be scared to death when I couldn't breathe. How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip, Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years, helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally 
first with words, then phrases, then sentences. No English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long-term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is the Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, it's essential reading for me. Whether I'm catching up on the latest tech trends or understanding how the day's news truly impacts my family, the Washington Post is my trusted source. Let's talk specifics. Their business and tech coverage, absolutely top-notch. Just imagine having the most insightful articles at your fingertips, including the unparalleled AI reporting from Drew Harwell or the pulse on tech and online culture from Taylor Lorenz. And the best part? You can listen to articles just like you listen to this podcast, making it perfect for your busy lifestyle. I was just reading an article from one of my favorite Washington Post writers, Frances Stead Sellers. She covers entrepreneurs like myself, but also covers other interesting topics, including health, as well as some very interesting books. I also love getting their For You newsletter, which is their roundup of stories tailored just for my interests, right in my inbox every evening. The Washington Post app is super well done, I think. It makes it incredibly easy to stay up to date and follow my favorite journalists on the go. And if you ever thought that the Washington Post is just about politics, think again. They cover everything under the sun, from climate and culture to crosswords and cooking, providing a world of surprising stories and vital insights. Okay, enough of the love fest that I have for the Washington Post. Here's the deal. Being a listener of the Kara Golden Show has its benefits, and this one is too good to miss. Now is the time to sign up for the Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. I would die. But if that didn't happen, I was like, kind of like, wow, the world is amazing and everything's amazing. And I'm so curious about everything. But I didn't have a lot to do. So I, I worked with my imagination. I spent lots of time inside my head. And one of the things I tried to do was to see if I could change the colors of the walls. So I could change my room color. Or if I could change the proportions of it. And I could, I learned to do all those things with my mind. Uh, we don't teach kids to do these things in school uh, because I don't know what we teach them exactly, but certainly we don't teach them imagination or intuition or creativity. But I always say that the foundation of who I became came from that time when I was alone in my own head. And uh, after that, I came back home. And I was still not very well, but I was also kind of dysfunctional. I couldn't really fit into the school system. They sent me to school and I didn't really, I couldn't really make it. Uh, it wasn't that, I mean, everybody knew and I knew that not only was I sick, but I was also smart. And, you know, I was what you know, would be called a gifted child. Uh, which had to do, it wasn't such a great gift to tell you the truth, but it had more to do with my IQ, but I couldn't fit into the classroom. And a couple of teachers at school saved me. They said, you know, don't go to the class, just go to the library and we'll, you know, we'll give you books three. We'll tell you what books to read. And then 
we'll see that you're okay. And that's where I got my education, uh, started my education. And I read so many kinds of books and I was fascinated by that. And, you know, so that kind of continued. I never really could make it in school. I was always not there. <laughs> I would play hooky. I would do whatever I could. I couldn't function. I just really couldn't function in school. And, uh, by, and uh, by the time, the only thing that would good happen to me, like in high school, was I discovered music, which I became later. I went to the conservatory in San Francisco, but I joined the choir because I figured maybe I could get through this class. Uh, and so that's where I learned four-part harmony and began my uh, learning about musical theory. I got a high school degree because my mom decided to send me to a private school in San Francisco, Drew School. And they agreed that they would give me tests. And if I te passed the test, I could get a high school diploma. So I did that. But that was it. And after that, you know, I had no idea what to do. Nobody in my family had ever gone to college or university. It wasn't a conversation. We didn't actually discuss it. It didn't really play any role at all. My family were all shopkeepers. Although my father later went back to, to university and got an MBA. But at that time, they were just shopkeepers. And I didn't know what I was going to do, but my grandmother's second husband uh, had a big connection with the Merchant Seamen's Union and was able to get me in to the Merchant Seamen's uh, Union. And I became a Merchant Seaman. So at the age of 18, weighing 107 pounds because I was very skinny, I sailed to Asia with some pretty rough guys. Wow. <laughs> I'm still surprised that I survived. And I did that for a while. Should I stop? Is that me as a child? <laughs> we, no, I, I, no, I love this. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. I know I, I was listening to the, I didn't know you were a merchant Marine either until I read the book. I was like, this is wild. And I mean, just, you know, what year was this too, that you were. So in 19, so I was born in 1945. As I said in the book, I was born when Hitler was still alive, uh, and Frank was still alive, before we dropped you know, the atomic weapon, before any computers have ever worked. And, uh, uh, but, so this was 1963. In 1963, I was 18. And I had graduated from Drew because they, my mother paid them off, I guess. And I, uh, you know... Had no idea what to do with my life. You were growing up around Haight-Ashbury as well. and Yeah, well, this was before the hippie movement, but I was uh, kind of a pre-hippie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was one of the first hippies, but I was, you know, we had beatniks, if anybody remembers those. And Allen Ginsberg was one. And, I, and when I was young, in my early teens, I heard him at poetry readings, but later I became a friend of his. Actually, and I recently, in doing my research, I discovered I was amazed. I was discovered that he kept my correspondence in That's his wild. Uh, papers, which made me feel really wonderful because I, I you know, I, that he wouldn't even remember me. Uh, but so I was really exposed to a lot of things before I became Bridge Seaman. I was going, uh, I got a small scholarship to study composition at the Conservatory of Music in San Francisco. I uh, was learning music, uh, playing uh, piano, and uh, learning, you know, philosophy, poetry, uh, history. I was interested in all those things. And I had friends that were kind of like me, kind of misfits that were interested in things like that. And we would hang out at City Lights Bookstore uh, and in North Beach. Later, you know, uh, when the hippie movement started, uh, you know, I and and the rock, the rock scene in San Francisco got started. You know, I was I was involved in that, but I that was after I was emergency. I love it. So you can't you come back from being yeah. a merchant marine, and what yeah. was the next step for you? I got very active in the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. And, you know, I'm sure that most of the people that are listening to uh, this 
will have been born a lot later than me. So they may not remember or know the, the Vietnam War. But I would like to say that, you know, the country was polarized at that time, too. Not as bad as now, although in some ways it was more violent then. And, you know, I, uh, so, I mean, I would lay down in front of uh, Dow Chemical trucks in Redwood uh, City where they were trying to uh, uh, load chips with napalm. You know, these huge trucks would have to stop or run me over where I was arrested wow. at a palace hotel for, you know, some bright stuff. And I was arrested with a great comedian, Dick Gregory. I write about that in the book. Yeah. But uh, so I was doing all that stuff and I had made some money as a merchant seaman. And so I was living off this money that I had made. And eventually I ran out of money or I was running out of money. And so I said to all my friends, I said, this, I need work. Does anybody have a job that, you know, is there any jobs out there for me? And um, I did get a job at a pizza store, you know, a night manager at a pizza store, but I wasn't really satisfied with that. And then one of my friends said, well, do you know anything about electronics? So I haven't said anything to now. I have mentioned the fact that since the time I was a child, I was studying physics and and electronics. I was really fascinated by that. And, you know, I, you know, like many people maybe, or not many, but some people, I built my first radio and I was, you know, into all kinds of science and I love science and I loved Albert Einstein. You can see from my hair and you know, I, I identified with him, you know, I wanted, you know, because my mom, I couldn't tie my shoelaces. And my mom once said to me, you know, you're just like this guy, Albert Einstein. He's really smart, but he can't tie his shoelaces. Later, I think she made that up, just made me feel better. I don't think, I don't know if you could tie shoelaces or not. Uh, so my friend said, you know, do you know anything about electronics? I said, yeah, I know some things. And he introduced me to a fascinating man named Joe Camillo, who was a professor at the University of California Medical School, Langley Porter Neuropsychiatric Institute. And Joe wanted to study brainwaves. And he wanted to see if you could use biofeedback. Biofeedback wasn't a concept at the time. But if you could, you train people. We don't know what's going on with their brainwaves. But if you could tell people what was going on, could they control it? And this was his thesis. And he needed somebody to design equipment to be able to do that. And so he, he said, yeah, I have a job to do that. Can you do that? And so I said, let me try. I think I probably can. And so and I said, but if, if I do it, will you hire me? And he said, yeah. So a couple of days later, I had designed what he was looking for, and he hired me, and we were together for a couple, two and a half years, and I designed the, uh, all the technology he used to do biofeedback. Uh, we studied Zen monks, for instance, and, look, and see if we could get people to have the same uh, brainwave configuration, and then what would they report? Would they report something like you know, meditations on which they did? So I did that. We, you know, we became kind of a little famous. We were in the Walter Cronkite show and, you know, Time Magazine wrote an article about us. And So this is the 70s? Or this no, is, 60s. This, this is still 66. the 60s. Okay. This is wow. still the 60s. And I had already gone through, you know, the hippie part. I, 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 I got tired of all that stuff. I was really, once I discovered technology, I couldn't stop myself. I would not sleep at night. I was studying constantly, you know, all the technology, particularly, you know, uh, binary arithmetic, binary logic, symbolic logic. But I could do it's it's nuts to think about it. I could do anything then. I mean, I I could take the raw materials like transistors, resistors, capacitors, and I could build flip flops, and I could build you know all the elements that came into a computer. But something happened to me. In about 1967, that changed my life. We got a computer, and we got a computer. I didn't even know what a computer really was. You know, we got a computer uh, not to program, but to run an experiment that Sus had done. We were, our job was to duplicate this experiment, and it wasn't Joe's computer. It was we were in the we had an institute first, and Joe was part of this institute at Langley Porter, and we got this computer, and. Uh, I remember everything about it, and it was PDP-7. It was blue. It was kind of big, and, and when everybody left that night, day, at the end of the day, I stayed, and I said, I have to understand how this works, so I opened up the back door, and I saw all these modules from Digital Equipment Corporation, uh, 
who manufactured the computer. And I, but I, in those days, I would build things, and the way I would create a program is I would have like a punch, like a plug-in board, like you would see in the switchboards, of, uh, you know, with phone operators. And I couldn't find the plug-in board. I mean, how are these things connected? I didn't know about software. I had never heard about software. So I started running through the manual. I'm looking at things. And, running. and at like 3 o'clock in the morning, I realized the concept of software. It was like I, I, like, I was in outer space. It was such a powerful idea of software. And by that morning, I could program. And so I was now, uh, you know, I could do hardware and I could do software. I understood the computer. And I asked, nobody there knew how to support that computer. So I asked, Joe, could I spend one day a week? Uh, kind of managing the computer activity, and so I did that, and uh, and and started writing more and more programs and so on. Anyway, I was in love. I mean, I can't tell you the passion I had for that computer, <laughs> and you know, and that computer. You know, I think the memory of that computer would be like, at best, a quarter of the size of one photograph you take on your iPhone. <laughs> yeah, no, and I knew Eric. I knew every bit in it. <laughs> so what were some of the names that during that time that were, you know, sort of thrown around around the not only the names of companies with computers, but what, who were some of the people like the the more kind of famous people at that time that were kind of doing sort of stuff that you were interested in? Do you remember? Well, on the computer side, you know, IBM was a dominant company, mm-hmm. but IBM at that time uh, you know, it was all like punch cards and batch processing. And, you know, you really never, and you couldn't ever get near the computer because it was in this room and all these people with white coats were running around, you know? So the second largest computer company was Digital Equipment Corporation, which was the leader of many computers. And uh, Ken Olson was the founder of that company. Later, I worked very closely with him. Amazing man. Uh, Gordon Bell was the guy, head engineering guy great technologist who I'm still close to. Ken, unfortunately, is no longer alive. And Ken wanted to build a computer that you could actually touch, you know, wasn't didn't need a computer room, even though, I mean, it was obviously maybe 10 times heavier than I was, you know, it, it was still, you could, you know, actually get it, hold it and touch it. I mean, you could hold it. So that was the second largest company a computer company. There were a lot of mini computer companies at the time. They all, none of them amounted to anything, but I mean, ultimately prime data general and so on. So there was no personal computer. You know, I will remember, I worked real closely with a, a, a guy. I'm still, I know his name was uh, Pete Harris, a little bit younger than I am. And Pete was also brilliant when it came to, you know, this technology. And we had an oscilloscope. We had an oscilloscope so that we could look at signals, electric signals. And Pete figured out how to to turn it into a character generator. And so we actually saw words up on the screen. It was the first time, you know, we were amazed by that. And then we would do crazy things like we could, we figured out how to vibrate. There was like a big rack that had a a tape on it. You know, these tapes you see sometimes maybe in the movies. And we figured out how to vibrate it so we could make the rack dance to the music. And we created music on the lights that went to our transistor radio. So we had like this whole thing going on. That's wild. Yeah. In the science side, I'm, you know, I, I, you know, uh, I only remember some names, but, you know, this was also a time when uh, LSD was, you know, people were experimenting with, uh, you know, Timothy Leary, Leary would come to our lab. You know, we had all these group people and people studying uh, whales and porpoises, and we even consulted. This is crazy, but we consulted for NASA because some of the astronauts were claiming they were having out of the body experiences, and they wanted us to figure a way that we could get them not to have these experiences, which I called the astronaut program because because of astro projections. Yeah. So anyway, I did that. It must have been so much fun to. I, I wish I could go back in time and be a fly on the wall, you know, sort of knowing, I mean, just, just things as simple as, like you said, the text finally, I mean, how many people sat there and looked at a computer at that time and said, who needs text, right? Like, I mean, yeah. and now you you can't even imagine, 
right? Yeah. That a computer, yeah. I mean, and to think that you were, you were there, you know what I mean? That that t- during that time, it was just so critical. I, I think often about, you know, the visionary entrepreneurs that are coming up with things that people think, you know, you'll never be able to do that. You'll, you know, who needs it? All of these things that of you're challenged by when, it, when you see it so clearly. I was driven. I was an entrepreneur, right? Because yeah. I was, you know, I was a scientist now. Joe had, Joe Camilla had turned me into a scientist. He taught me everything about scientific methodology, statistics, everything. I mean, I was a scientist. I mean, I didn't think about being a non It's funny because I came from a family of shop owners, but I never thought about being an entrepreneur, you know? And, and I was just driven by the amazing potential of it all, you know, the possibilities of it. And, uh, I mean, I didn't really realize that, you know, we were Moore's law hadn't been invented. You know, I didn't know what the treadmill was like, you know, I just thought, my God, you know, you can create a program out of your head, in your side, your brain, you can create something. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah, you know, I just loved it. Well, your journey is great. I mean, you jumped. So why do you think you never actually became an entrepreneur? Because in so many ways, I feel like you had the, you know, the, your parents as shopkeepers thinking, thinking about, you know, I don't know, a, a better life, creating whatever it is. I feel like you also were always working around entrepreneurs, but you supported entrepreneurs, but you never actually founded your own thing. Right. Well, I, I mean, I didn't know anything about entrepreneurs for a while. Uh, because my only dealings with corporations were, you know, they were pretty large corporations, you know, with tens of thousands of people. I never, you know, worked with a small company uh, until later. So after I left Joe, I went to the to to Holland and uh, was kind of a co-founder of what became the, what is the Thorax Center as an interdisciplinary center for cardiovascular and uh, pulmonary medicine. I left brains because it was more money and hearts. <laughs> I guess, and and we built a center using technology as a fundamental uh, ingredient to how we we're going to provide patient care. And uh, so Paul was probably Paul Huguenot who founded it. He probably was an entrepreneur. You know, he had a vision. You know, he just was an entrepreneur, not in a business sense, but in a you know healthcare sense. He was an entrepreneur. He created uh, an amazing medical center that still lives today and a place where remarkable things, you know, were done that affect all of you. Like for instance, we did the first echocardiology cardi- system uh, and, uh, there, but so anyway, uh, uh, why didn't I become an entrepreneur? I think that I'm too rational <laughs> in a way, even though <laughs> well, it's like you like crazy. to know how everything works. I mean, you're, no, but you're I, very curious, you know, I preferred Generally, I prefer to work with large companies that had a lot of resources. Mm-hmm. And, and I never had the dream. It was never my dream to have a company uh, myself. And, uh, and also, you know, it's a different thing because it's kind of limiting. You know, when you first become an entrepreneur, I, at least, you know, I know entrepreneurs. I mean, do I know entrepreneurs? I've invested in, you know hundreds of early stage companies, uh, both when I had Intel and then later from my own account. But, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, you get to figure out a a strategy and then it's all execution. Mm -hmm. And, And it's probably pretty narrow. And then something new comes by, but you can't follow it. You've got to keep going. You've got to keep doing the thing you're doing. And personally, that would be limiting for me. I wanted, uh, I needed a lot more leverage. You know, I needed Digital Equipment Corporation where I went to work. I needed Intel. I needed lots of heft, you know, to get the things done that I wanted to get done. (laughs) Well, so you came back uh, to Silicon Valley in the 80s. And so talk to me about the 80s. Well, first of all, I, I, I spent five years in Israel. And uh, in the 70s, 
60, uh, uh, 74 to 79. And uh, probably I, I started a business, actually, medical electronics business, because I wanted to do something for Israel and help Israel with exports. But I was also, by that time, I was an associate professor in medicine. And, it was, uh, and I had an appointment at the University of Tel Aviv. Uh, by the way, you know, I mean, I, I still think it's amazing, remarkable that I could get that, that without ever going to university. I was going to say age, that. So you, you age were twenty-nine. Yeah, and I had published many papers in 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 uh, serious medical journals and so on. Uh, but something happened again. I uh, I wasn't really happy in Israel. Israel in nineteen in this at that time was not the Israel of today. And I was struggling. My and my and my first wife was struggling living there. Our our kids were happy, uh, and but I decided, you know, I I was uh, my I was in too narrow of a of a niche, you know, real time physiological signal processing, focus on cardiology. With computers, and I, and so I said to myself, you know, Avra, you've got to either get deeper in medicine or deeper in computers. You know, don't couple those two things together. You know, uh, and the way you have, and then it was easy because I couldn't give up computers. Then I decided if I was going to do medicine, I was going back to Holland, where you know I had been five years and spoke. I spoke. I speak fluent Dutch still. And my my sons had been born there. My wife is Dutch. Or we'd go to the United States, and I'd work in the computer industry. And so since I wanted to do computers, I went to the United States. And I didn't go back to Silicon Valley. I went to Massachusetts. That's where computers were happening, not in Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley wasn't a computer place. And I, because I knew a lot of people at Digital Equipment Corporation, I had consulted for them. I did, did some design work for them. I ended up actually running the low-end uh, low hardware engineering for the company, which is crazy because I didn't have an engineering degree. And now I have, you know, like a thousand people working for me and doing uh, hardware engineering. But I did that. And then I, it's a long, you know, uh, I developed what became, which was kind of uh, digital personal computer, but we didn't call it a personal computer. We didn't even think of it as being a personal computer, but it's professional computer, single purpose computer. Uh, and that didn't work out. It's a long story, but I talk about it in the book in detail. And then I went to work for Franklin Computer, which was an Apple, which was Apple II clone. And uh, like Compaq was an IBM PC clone. And we were growing faster than Compaq. But we had a lawsuit with Apple. And uh, uh, Apple never won that lawsuit. But the lawsuit really made it very difficult for Franklin uh, to be the success it was. And why did I go to Franklin? I thought about starting a company on my own. But I, was, I didn't know exactly how am I supposed to raise money and what if it fails? And, uh, you know, I, and then I got an offer. Franklin was doing really well and was going to go public. But I like to join and be, you know, run the company and make it what I wanted to. So I thought, sure. Anyway, that didn't work out. So it's one of the, I have many failures, by the way. And in the book, I chronicled them. Writing the book, I was really surprised about how many times I failed. Because you kind of, when you remember later, and when you have successes, you kind of focus on your successes. And you go, oh, you know, I did you know, I, I can see that in LinkedIn. Because when I look at people's LinkedIn uh, entries, and I know them, I see what gaps and I know what happened in those gaps, you know, because they failed. But and I, uh, you know, oh I, it's God. only a failure. It's only a failure if you don't learn. So true. I joined Intel in 1984, and at first I was in Oregon, and then and I was doing some work in their systems area, and then uh, came down to do business development in Santa Clara. And Intel kept saying, you know, we don't really have a headquarters. And I said, okay, that's fine. But I want to sit next to Andy Grove and Gordon Poor, if you don't mind. So I, so I went down there and I started doing, 
I wanted, I was, I saw my job is to help Intel expand its horizons. It was a very insular company. I had been hired by Les Fidesz because he wanted to bring somebody in that was different and somebody who knew more about the computer industry. And I was the highest ranking person that was ever brought in. And in fact, in 1988, uh, in the annual report, there are 28 officers. I'm one of them. I was the last one to join 15 years earlier. So I was the only one they ever brought in. And God knows how I managed to survive. But uh, in that uh, very strong culture. But I, after doing some uh, mergers and acquisitions, I realized I was not going to be successful at Intel. The culture was so strong. The antibodies would come in and attack the foreign object. It was just impossible. So then I decided, well, maybe we should invest in minority companies. Take minority position. Let's invest, do some early stage investment. I didn't even know it was called venture capital. But anyway, let's Was, any, was anyone early. doing that back then? I mean, was that, were any well, there were venture, well, sure, there were, there were venture companies. Intel was uh, backed by uh, Art Rock. But not the you know, companies. Were the, they weren't investing. Oh, no, some had tried and whatever. Uh, and so I was doing it and I had some successes. I worked for Les the whole time, Les Fidesz, an amazing man. The whole time I was at Intel, Les was, you know, badge three, actually. And, and he was, should have been badge three, but Les was badge three. And um, Andy decided that he he wanted to, uh, rationalize all these investments and and some of the business units were doing some investments and whatever and ask less to focus on it full time along with me and that's when we created we called it corporate business development later it was renamed intel capital i i always refer to it as intel capital because otherwise people get confused but it's the same organization just with a name change and i became a corporate officer which was uh, a great honor and Kind of strange because, you know, in those days, corporate officers had, you know, P&Ls and they were real men, you know, because we only had two women. Uh, and uh, but, uh, you know, and we started Intel Capital and we had three objectives to give Intel insight into the future by looking at what venture early stage companies were doing. And I would say, you know, early stage companies are the research lab for corporate America. Mm-hmm. There are people who have seen something, believe in it so much, have so much passion, they're willing to risk everything for it, you know. And uh, and so you get a lot of insight from that. The second objective was to to grow Intel's business, you know, by investing in companies who's uh, who could add kind of to the eco to the value chain that would allow Intel to grow. And the third thing was to make a good financial return. So we, so they would leave us alone. I, we figured that if we made money, nobody was going to try to, you know, ma- overmanage us. They'd just leave us alone. So that happened. And Intel Capital became the most successful corporate venture capital activity in the world by the time I left in 1999. And maybe certainly at least one of the most successful venture capital companies overall. Uh, we started with fifty million dollars. Eleven years later, we the portfolio was worth eight billion, and we probably had taken three billion off the table already. Wow! So, and we made hundred, and it, but it's st- and it still exists, and it's still successful. So that's testimony. You know, I, I think to largest extent is a testimony to Les, who. Uh, you know, together with me, you know, we kind of figured out how to do it and how to, you know, teach people to do it. And we didn't think of ourselves as venture capitalists. And in fact, I don't even like venture capitalists by and large, although some of my friends are venture capitalists. But, but you know, because we saw ourselves as having a strategic objective. Yeah, no, it's 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 awesome. I mean, this is at a time when, you know, personal computers were just getting started. How did, did you ever imagine that we'd be walking around with one in our hand? I mean, did you did you ever sure. think that there was a time when that was going to happen? I mean, oh, 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 of course. Uh, you know, it happened a little bit differently. So, uh, in the mid 90s, there were all kinds of devices for the hand. There was uh, General Magic. There was Go. 
there was WinPad, which was done uh, from uh, Microsoft with Intel. Uh, there are many, uh, Newton, did I say that right? Anyway, there are many attempts, okay? There are many attempts. But, you know, one of the things uh, I, I was able to see these uh, waves that happened. So we had, you know, I, I started in the mini computer area, then we went to the personal computer area. You know, we went to the internet and, and broadband, and then we went to mobile devices, which I see as really an extension of the personal computer. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not an extension of the phone. Telephone, the telephone is an application of a, of the, on a computer. But, you know, it wasn't too entrepreneurs, other people, they all start too early, you know, because when you're a technologist, you see things too early. Mm-hmm. There should be, you know, like a warning, you know, so they all start too early. So I always say, if you want to look for a good idea, look in the graveyard of the failed ideas. Yeah, it's, it's so true. Right. And, and I often think too, it's, you know, in the case of Hint, very, very different, my company, it's, we were the, we started a new category. And which is unsweetened flavored water, and the number of people who said, "Who needs a?" You know, no one got it. Well, to start a new category is very difficult. But you know, the thing that um, we have to keep in mind—I talk a lot about uh, this—is uh, first of all, luck. I'm sure that it must have played a role because it always does. You know, I always say it's you know it's important. Two things are important: to be lucky and not mistake being lucky for being smart. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, be humble and realize you're lucky, you know, take, take advantage of it. Don't think, you know, you've made it. So the thing is that, you know, once I gave a lecture at the uh, uh, Anderson School of uh, at the uh, at UCLA about business and early stage companies, whatever, and somebody, they always ask, you know, what do successful companies have in common? And I say that they were successful. Uh, because they don't have much in common. I mean, I, I mean, there are reasons why companies fail, but the, the reasons why they're successful is one, they didn't fail, but two, they kind of got lucky, you know, because timing is everything, but you don't know what the right time is, you know, so people start, you know, earlier, they start later and whatever. That's why, you know, I, I kind of think you have to be a little bit insane to be an entrepreneur because most entrepreneurs are not going to make it. Now, thank God you did. And I'm so proud and happy for you that you did. But I probably, if I dug around, I could find a lot of people that didn't. Thank you. No, uh, it, it was, <laughs> you know, I always share with, with entrepreneurs, and I think this is true in every single industry, that when you are creating a new category and you're the only one, your initial instinct as an entrepreneur is to say, uh, I'm the only one doing it. You know, maybe you're really quiet about your idea and yeah. you, know, you don't want anyone yeah. to know. And it, it, you mentioned that execution is, is so key and it's luck and, and yeah. everything else. But when you're the only one, I mean, I, what I realized as we had entrants coming in that were, you know, competitors as we started to grow yeah. at first, I thought, you know, especially when it was Coca-Cola, they were coming in with a knockoff yeah. product. And I thought, okay, I'm done. You know, at this point, they have lots of money. But what I realized is that they're actually building the awareness of the category. And so there's competition is not a bad thing. You just have to be able to yeah. stay the course and stay alive and, right. and, and right. have enough money to, you know, keep going and set yourself apart in some ways. But I think that there's so many lessons and, and, you know, even in what you're talking about, about in, in the computing age as, as well, where there was just one, right. And there was not, there was nobody else around there. And, and then it, it just died because the, there wasn't enough buzz about it. There wasn't enough. There are a lot of factors that go, I mean, it's like any one of 10 things that would go wrong would kill the business. So that means all 10 have to go right. You know, it's really hard. It is. It's yeah, no, it's, I totally agree. Maybe I, I can share with, since we're on this topic, I'll share with you uh, the four ingredients that I think that go into making, having a successful company. I love it. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and I use this all the time to evaluate companies. So this is like my secret sauce. Okay. So the first thing I, want to hear about is the opportunity. And I don't believe that you create opportunities, you recognize opportunities. 
So mm-hmm. if you want to go surfboard, uh, surfing and you have not a surf and you have a surfboard, you still have to go to a beach that has waves because you can't make a wave. Mm-hmm. Okay. So recognizing an opportunity is critical. And if you can recognize it before other people, that's pretty great. It's easy to recognize an opportunity after everybody else has recognized it. Okay. But to recognize it early is really important. And when people try to pitch me a company, I always say, tell me about the opportunity. Because if I don't believe in the opportunity, I don't care about the rest. We can end the meeting because, you know, if it's not a great opportunity, you know, and I think of an opportunity as like a neighborhood, you know, and a neighborhood that's going to take off, you know, and, and in the neighborhood, I want to invest in the neighborhood. I want to, you know, I'd rather have a, a bad house in a great neighborhood than a great house in a bad neighborhood because I can fix mm-hmm. the house. But I can't fix the neighborhood. So there's the opportunity. And if, and if your listeners want to take an exercise, go around and start looking at companies like Uber, uh, you know, uh, Airbnb, Facebook, whatever. Just see uh, Google. See if you can de- describe the opportunity. Because if you're no good at describing the opportunity retrospectively, believe me, you're going to be no good at describing it prospectively. Okay, so you have to so be able true. to understand that, you so know, and true. really take into your heart the notion of opportunity. After you have a great opportunity, you can have a strategy. And there isn't just one strategy. There are many strategies. Some are better than others. So I always want to hear, well, what's your strategy? I want to, do I believe this is a good strategy? Do I believe there might be a better strategy? I would maybe ask an entrepreneur, okay, I understand that's your strategy. What other strategies did you consider? If they say, well, I didn't consider any other ones, I'm probably not going to go much further with them because I want people to, you know, to think. And, mm-hmm. uh, and okay, so now once you get to the strategy, there's the execution because you could have a great strata, opportunity, great strategy, and lousy execution, you're going to fail. And, and so that's where the team and the people really matter. Now, there are a lot of venture capitalists. John Doerr is the favorite one I pick on. Is John says, well, I, I invest in a team. And I always think, well, maybe that's because that's what you understand, John. Uh, you know, because you've already 20 people have come in with the same idea and you're going to pick the ones that the best team to execute that idea. Uh, because the way venture capitalists do pattern recognition is they see how many people come in with the same idea. Uh, and then, uh, but, you know, execution, you know, becomes absolutely critical. And then there's the reward. So as an investor or as an entrepreneur, as anybody who's involved, what am I going to get out of this? If we have a great opportunity, a great strategy, we execute brilliantly. Am I going to get a payoff? And not always, because sometimes it takes too long, it's too expensive, you know, it's just, you know, uh, and so you were successful, but it's just not worth it, okay? So I always, you know, think about that as well. Uh, And, you know, I'm not an entrepreneur, but I am an investor in entrepreneurs, you know, and so I have spent a lot of time with them, and even so, probably... I have a pretty good track record, but probably half of my investments now, you know, fail. And, and I'm always, you know, and I'm always thinking, oh God, I've lost my touch because they they always fail early, you know, (laughs) later you have to wait for the other ones to succeed. So anyway, that's how I look at it. Well, I, I love this. And so let's, let's talk about your book. Um, first of all, I loved your book because the, the honesty and uh, and the humor, and I felt like I was just having a conversation with you. But again, the s- historical nature, and I think that history really does play such a critical component to what happens going forward. And I felt like there were so many pieces in here that I kept coming back to kind of what's going on in today's world. I mean, one of the things we haven't talked about, but broadband communication, I mean, you were, yeah. you were there. I mean, when, when people were, I mean, for those of you who are not old enough, I mean, this was a, you know, 
when you used to back in the in the 90s when I was at America Online where you know you would fight with your brother in the next yeah. room while you're on a chat room on AOL and somebody or ICQ or whatever where somebody would cut you off right and you'd get yeah. get very angry and uh you know broadband was not there and it wasn't a possibility and even before that I was with a little um, spin out of Apple that was doing CD-ROM shopping where uh, they were taking all these graphics and putting it on a disc because broadband wasn't, you know, quite there yet. And so what do you see as, like, tell us a little bit about the broadband. What would you compare that to in today's world of, of like, where the future is, is not quite there, but you think it'll get there? So this is... Uh probably my greatest uh, accomplishment was an Intel Capital. It was kind of leading the industry's effort to create residential broadband. And that was an easy thing to do. It took seven years to get from from beginning to having a million people having a broadband connection in their home. But it started in a really funny way because I wanted to work in the consumer. I had taken a sabbatical in 91 and I could come back. And I told Andy, I want to work in the consumer market. And Andy said, there is no consumer market for computers. And I said, I know, I, I think people really, you know, I think there is. No, 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 no. This is a business product. So I said, well, I think you're wrong. I really want to work in it. And so Andy, to his credit, said, okay, you want to waste your time in the home market for computers? Go ahead. But nobody else is going to help you. I'm not going to allow anybody, any other resources. Just You can spend your time doing that if you want to. And at a meeting with about 200 managers in the company, Andy said, you know, Aram wants to work in the home market, but there's no home market. Nobody help him. So, and then I would tell people, well, you know, every Tuesday I'm going to sit in this conference room and I'm going to think about the home computer market and have lunch. And people started showing up to have lunch with me. And I got bigger and bigger conference rooms. And uh, we eventually launched the Pentium into the home market. But I was doing that. And then one day, Andy gets a call from Bill Gates. And Bill says to Andy, you know, Andy, we really want to pursue the home market. We want to pursue the consumer market, but nobody at Intel seems to be interested. So you don't mind if we work with AMD. AMD was Intel's competitor. And of course, he did that to manipulate Andy because Andy didn't want to work with AMD. And Andy says, what do you mean nobody cares? Do you know who Ivor Miller is? And Bill said, yeah, of course, because I knew it. I, I met Bill Gates when he was 25, you know, so uh, he, he knew me. And he said, yeah, well, Avram's working full time at the home, uh, the consumer market. And Bill said, well, get him up here to Redmond and have him meet with Rob Glazer. Rob Glazer was responsible for consumer stuff at Microsoft time before going off to form real networks. And so I went up there and, oh, oh so Andy... Andy has me come up to his office to tell me about this call. And he says, I don't care what you do. Just keep him away from AMD. You know, so that's my job. So, uh, so uh, but I said, fantastic. Now I can do something in the consumer market, you know. <laughs> so I got, now I'm going to have some resources. So we put together, and there was a, a big announcement about it and so on. We were going to build an set, interactive set-top box together with General Instruments, which was the largest supplier mm-hmm. to the cable industry, equipment supplier. Guess who was running General Instruments? Dom Rumsfeld. So I would meet with Dom Rumsfeld and he'd have like eagles and American flags behind because he had been already the Secretary of Defense for the first George Bush. Uh, Donald, some of you know Donald Rumsfeld as his name. You you know, Avram calls him Don because it's like, you know, that was, but (laughs) Donald is how many of us know, uh, know his name as, as, you know, the former secretary of defense. So keep yeah, going. He, he just, he just died recently. Anyway, uh, we put together this project and we have a team and we're building a set top box. And the, and the good news is I'm learning about how the whole cable system works. You know, I'm learning about how the business works. I'm learning about all the technology, you know, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm pretty nerdy. So, you know, I get into understanding how all the bits are flowing and whatever in the cable system. And But then eventually I come to the conclusion, you know, it's never going to happen because there's no way the cable company is going to pay for something that's powerful enough to do what they want. And also the TV's got no pixels. It's a lousy device and nobody wants to do interactivity on 
in their living room and whatever, but people are already buying computers. And I noticed that people at work were staying at work to get on AOL from work because it was faster. Yeah. You know, because they had, they had basically broadband. So, uh, so I, my counterpart at General Instruments was uh, a man named Matt Miller. He's not related to me. Uh, and, we, and so one day I brought Matt to actually Gordon Moore's conference room. And I said, Matt, this thing's not going to work out. But, and I explained, why don't we use personal computers? And why don't we build a cable modem? And, I, and with the chips that were being developed, I knew how they work. And they were all packet network chips. I could see exactly how we could build a cable modem. So we agreed to do that. And then I said, let's not tell Microsoft. So we didn't tell Microsoft. When Bill Gates got, found out, he screamed at me and he called me uh, a lot of profanities. But it wasn't the first time and it wasn't the last time. Uh, and, and we started working with it and we did a trial, a Comcast and whatever. And it's a long story, but it's a big detailed in my book. Uh, and that's when I went to AOL. And, you know, met with Steve Case, and I'm a prodigy, and I'm trying to convince everybody, you know, that they need to get on the problem. And AOL, to its credit, really made the change, whereas, you know, others were a bit slower. Uh, but what we had to do at Intel was we had to get the whole ecosystem to work. We had to get all the software. We had to get everything to work, the chips, like Broadcom. So we were all over the stack, and we invested in it, and we made billions. We made billions from investing in Broadcom and Broadcast.com, Mark Cuban's, you know, things when they yeah. talk about Chart Tank. You know, we had Chart Tank. He was on the stage. I was in the audience because <laughs> I had it. He was pitching me. Uh, Wild. <laughs> so it was an amazing thing. And then we, we did DSL as well because we wanted to get it, you know, cable was in every place and especially in Europe and so on. Uh, but it was a huge, huge undertaking and uh, and it wasn't to 2000 that we began to see real numbers, but it changed everything. It's such an incredible story. So before we uh, before we go, I want to talk about so the title of the book, uh, "The Flight of the Wild Duck." Why why is that the title? Um, it's the title because when I was talking, as I was doing research for the book, I uh, interviewed about 70 people. One of them was uh, Renee James. And Renee James became president of Intel, but at, at one time she was a technical assistant for Andy. And Renee and I were close friends. And I was telling her, I said, you know, I feel like I, and I worry about this book, that I didn't have the impact on Intel that I wanted to have. And that Intel, like when we see what happened to Intel now, you know, and and I felt like Andy just didn't listen to me. And I kept thinking, why is it that I'm not getting him to listen to me? And what is it about my, you know? And uh, Renee said, you know, Andy thought so highly of you. He, he loved you. He called you Intel's wild duck. And he said that I always want somebody like Avram on my team, somebody who thinks just differently. And uh, the wild duck term for that actually came from IBM, from Watson. He was the one who said, you have to have a wild duck. So Andy took it from that. So I thought, okay, you know, kind of that's what I was. So, you know, I'll use, you know, the wild duck and uh, I'm happy with it. Oh, I, I love it. So great. So we're, so obviously this, this book is available uh, early September, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, I mean, it can be pre-ordered now for ebook. And I think by the end of next week, it will be, you could pre-order it for a hard copy, a hardcover or soft uh, a paperback. I love it. Uh, well, it is such a great journey and so incredible. And where do f people find and follow you, Avram, as well on social? Find out more about what you're up to? Well, okay. I have a, a blog that I've been doing for 16 years called Two Thirds Done. So it's all spelled out. I started when I turned 60 because I thought maybe I might have another third left. Uh, the, the book has a website called wildduckflight.com. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn as Opera Miller. I'm on Facebook, but I don't accept people I don't know. But on LinkedIn, I'm pretty promiscuous. So. I love uh, it. Well, everybody get this book, learn more about Avram, and uh, I wish I could 
sit here with you for more hours because you just Thank you're you. an incredible storyteller. And again, I I said it's it's not only informative this book, but it's historical in so many ways. And more than anything, I I just I I hope so many people read this to be inspired to know that you know, there are things that are possible and, you know, and, and being able to be a part of something you so often don't, when they seem challenging, when they seem crazy, uh, hopefully you'll recognize later that, that, uh, it's, it's normal, right. And it's, uh, it's expected. And that's what I got out of this. So thank you so much, Avram. And, uh, thanks everybody for listening. We, we love, uh, hearing from inspiring people like Avram and uh, definitely come back and see us and he- listen to us uh, again. Uh, and we're here every Monday and Wednesday, by the way, uh, with a great podcast for you. And so thanks, everyone. Have a great rest of the week. Thank you. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head-on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.